0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making theology central.
1: Good morning, everyone. It is Sunday, January the 16th, 2022. It is currently 11.06 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Victory Baptist Church located right here in Ovalo, Texas, and this is part eight of our Bible study exercise on the book of Obadiah. Now, technically, we should be done with this Bible study exercise. We should have ended it yesterday, but I, I felt that we, we needed to do just a little bit more. So we're doing something I hope everyone's finding to be interesting. Hopefully everyone's having a little bit of fun with this. We are listening to Dr. J. Vernon McGee teach through the book of Obadiah. Remember, his ministry gave us permission. We can use their audio in any way we want. I can just air it, just without any, without anything. I can just play it as is. But we are uh, we are engaging with it, and, uh, basically reviewing it, analyzing it, critiquing it, offering uh, separate and different opinions. But we're in the Book of Obadiah. Dr. J. Vernon McGee has just spent some time talking about the sin of pride. We had a very interesting discussion about that. I'm not going to go back and review anything because we need to move forward. We have a long ways to go. We still have over an hour of audio from Dr. J. Vernon McGee on the book of Obadiah. So we have a long ways to go. Um, a lot of what he has discussed so far are things that we have talked about. He has handled the subject of Edom you know, obviously coming from Esau and and the whole Jacob and Esau thing, he's handled it in a way that I am I'm I'm questioning theologically because he's almost acting like, you know, God. He's he's removing the sovereignty of God and it and as 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 Jacob and Esau has talked about in Romans chapter nine, he's removing that whole concept of God's sovereignty and election, which I I I, I'm, I don't like that fact. But he's brought up some very interesting points about the sin of pride. And we just discussed that, so we're not going to waste any time. We're just going to jump in. Remember, have notebooks open, and live chat is open. If you have any thoughts or observations or questions, it, it, it's there. If if you want to let me know that you're 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 there, okay. If you do, if not, that's fine. We, but we are going to see how far we can go. It is eleven. It's eleven oh eight. We're going to try to at least, at a minimum, make it to at least noon, minimum. I don't want to go beyond, say, 12.10. Um, but if it's really going to be, if, we're, if we find just a very good natural stopping point, then that's where we're going to stop. If like this is just the perfect place to stop, even if it's a little earlier, or if it, I'm just going to figure out where is a good natural place to stop. And then obviously this afternoon, we're going to still be working on Obadiah. We're going to, I'm going to have a lot to do this afternoon because we got to finish this, we got to introduce the new week of Bible study, and then oh, I still need to do some work on Romans 13, and we still need to get to the concept of. There's so many different things we need to get to. So, uh, yeah, I, I won't, I won't go down the list right now. But are you ready? Here we go, Dr. J Vernon McGee, from his program through the Bible. They gave us permission to use their content, and we are going to make good use of it. Uh, if, if something's made available available to you, let's make, let's take. I haven't taken advantage of it really that much, uh, but uh, I'm going to take advantage of it right now, and uh, we're going to just jump in and and uh, hopefully we can learn something. So here we go. It's going to be kind of an abrupt jumping back in. Just he just discussed the sin of pride. He may have a few more things to say about it. We're at the twenty-six minute. 57 mark, 50, 26 minutes, 57 second mark. We ended at the 26 minute, 59 second mark in the last episode. So we just moved it back two seconds. And uh, here we
0: go. Than that. Now this, by the way, is one that gets right down where we live today. And it's very important because this is right where the bat hits the ball, friends. This is where... The plane of your life and my life touches down on the runway of the life of God today. And we are given here a right perspective. I want to say to you that pride is the sin of sins. It's one of the worst sins of all. It's something that the Scripture condemns above everything. Now, let me give you some Scripture for this. God says that he hates pride. And if that's the thing that Edom's eaten up with, God can say, Esau, have I hated because of that of pride. I don't say it's an unpardonable sin, but I'd say that if there's anything is unpardonable, that would be it. Notice what the writer of the Proverbs says in the 6th chapter of Proverbs, verse 16. It says, "...these six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. Number one, a proud look. Number two, a lying tongue. Three, and hands that shed innocent blood. Four, a heart that deviseth wicked imagination." Five, feet that be swift running to mischief. Six, a false witness that speaketh lies. And seven, he that soweth discord among brethren. And you know what number one is on God's hate parade? A proud look.
1: Now, we we, we ended the last broadcast talking about this. Remember, I wanted you to really, and I'm just going to emphasize this again. I want you to write down this uh, phrase from uh, Obadiah verse three, the pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. How has pride deceived you in the past? How is it possibly deceiving you in the present? And what can you do to avoid it deceiving you in the future? Why, how does pride deceive us? And here's another question that we can just, we can't spend all, all the hour on this. I mean, we really, we could because it's so important, but why is it that, that uh, when Christians get so upset about things, right? Why is it that pride is not, it's not even a sin that we worry about. It's like, it's not even a sin that gets, it gets preached on here and there, but just think of all the, the, the concerns and, and Christians are so upset about things. Christians are upset and worried about, you know, critical race theory, or they're they're worried and upset about, you know, rap music, or they're worried and upset about a video game, or they're worried and upset about a movie, or, oh my goodness, Harry Potter's going to bring down entire civilization. It's going to be the end of the world. It's like so many things Christians get so just worked up and upset about, and we've got to condemn, and we've got to do this, and, and pride just seems to be like, well, you know, yeah, pride's bad, but... Why is it that pride is that is that a way pride has deceived us has pride so deceived us into thinking that pride is really not that sinful I mean it's just insane that again you you can you can talk about the things people are church disciplined for you can talk about the things that pastors may get fired for and pride almost never shows up unless uh, this is usually where it shows up. If they're like, they're, someone's upset with a pastor and they're trying to bring the pastor down, they will they will compile a list. Then they will include pride. They'll throw pride in there to add to the list. But it's not like, hey, this pastor was prideful. Let's take him down for that. No, it's like, no, we're gonna need more than just pride. We're gonna need more than just pride. We, we gotta we get some other things. It's like, you're not gonna, hey, we gotta church discipline someone for pride and people would be like, What? That seems like an overreach. <laughs> but other sins, oh, absolutely. Why, why is that? I, it's just bizarre how our, our way of thinking is so contrary to God. Well, actually, you know what? That's kind of the whole problem, isn't it? Our way of thinking is not in line with God's way of thinking. But we want to get further into Obadiah. All right, here we
0: go. A proud look when that man or that woman walks into church and looks at some poor saint there that they know has committed a sin, and the man lifts his head, puts his nose in the air, and the woman draws the skirts about her. Of course, they wouldn't have many skirts today to draw about them, but suppose that she did that. May I say to you, that in the sight of God is worse than getting drunk. And that's not condoning drunkenness. That's saying that drunkenness is bad, but here's something that's lots worse than that. And that's not all that God says. God says He resists the proud, but He always is on the side of the humble. God hates a proud look, as we've seen. And He says this that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil and pride. And John tells us that pride of life is not of the Father. Where does it come from? If there's anything that comes from the devil, that is it. And today, a great many of the saints have pride of race, pride of face, and pride of grace. They're even proud they've been saved by grace. My friends, that ought not make you proud or something to even brag about. It's something to glorify God about, but it's something to humble you. Aren't you ashamed of yourself that you have to be saved by grace because you're such a miserable sinner? Well, may I say to you, I wish I had something to offer God for salvation. I have none, and therefore I have to be saved by grace. And I can't even boast of that. there are too many boasting today of the fact that they have been sinners. Well, God giveth grace to the humble. And we are told, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what kind of mind did he have? Lowliness of mind. He said, I'm meek and humble, and for that reason take my yoke upon you. And that, after all, was the sin of Satan. That is the thing that I think is destroying the testimony of a great many Christians today, and have made them very ineffective for God. Although they go in for show, but the thing they're building is a big haystack, and they're not building on the foundation of Christ in gold and silver and precious stones. And pride today has a great many of the saints down for the count of ten. Pride today has pinned the shoulders to the mat of a great many today. And this is the thing that brought Satan down. He says, I'll exalt my throne above the stars of God. I'll be like the Most High. And that was actually Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. He strutted like a peacock in the palace of his kingdom of Babylon. And I'm quoting Scripture now, Daniel 4:30. The king spoke and says, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? And what happened to him? While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it's, The kingdom is departed from thee. They shall drive thee from man, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And that's no accident, friends. The psychologists would call that hysteria today that led to a form of amnesia where this man did not know who he was, and he went out and acted like an animal of the field. Why? Because when a man is lifted up by pride, He's not lifted up. He has come down to the level of the beasts, and that is the picture of him. And God debased this man, brought him down to the level of the beasts of the field. Now, what is pride? How would you define pride? Well, let me give you a definition of it. I've said that I think it's a form of insanity. But pride is this, pride of heart is the attitude of a life that declares its ability to live without God. May I give that to you again? This is important because, as I said a moment ago, this is where the bat hits the ball for a great many Christians. And here is the definition. Pride of heart is the attitude of a life that declares its ability to live without God. And so we find here the pride of heart had lifted up this nation of Edom. And just like Esau, who despised his birthright, and he thought a bowl of soup, even in the home of Isaac, where there was plenty to eat, but he liked that bowl of soup, and he liked it more, than he liked his birthright. He didn't care for God at all. And when he despised that birthright, he despised God. And now Esau's become a great nation. And you have a nation now that declares its ability to live without God. Listen to them. Verse 3, "...the pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Now, he lived in a very unique place.
1: Now, before he continues, I just want to add a couple more thoughts here about the sin of pride, I think is very important. If pride is defined basically with this attitude of living without God, that you, you feel like you don't need God, you're living without God. I think sometimes this is what happens within Christianity, and you may agree or disagree with this. We, we, when we, uh, when we initially get saved, we realize we need God, we need the blood of Jesus, we need salvation, we need grace, and we feel like we need it. Then we start living out our Christian life, and maybe we, there's some radical transformation taking place. We stop drinking, we stop doing drugs, we stop this, we stop that, and we start, we reach a level of, of spirituality. We reach a level of godliness, right? Uh, we, we know other people are like, look at their, what they're doing and look at what they're doing. And you like, and you start immediately thinking, well, I'm better than all of, I mean, and you may not say it this way, but you realize you're living differently. You may not say better. You're living differently than all of these people. You're seeing their broken lives, their mess, their truck. And you're like, man, I, I'm, I'm living in a sense different than them. I'm different. And we may even say, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like these other people, right? You see where I'm going, right? Yeah. I, I, and we, 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 whether we want to admit it, we start thinking, well, well, and we may even thank God for it. Hey, thank you, Lord, that that you've changed me so much. And then what happens is we become very comfortable in the fact that now we're different. We become very comfortable in the fact that we've been changed. And now that change that godliness that we have experienced now becomes a source of pride. So now we we start feeling like, look at how I'm living compared to them. We start looking down on everyone else. We condemn everyone else. We gossip and slander about everyone else. And then when someone else's sin, we're like, well, I can't believe that they did this. And sometimes it's our, I think about this, sometimes it's our sanctification that becomes a source of pride because we become so comfortable in our sanctification. We don't think we need God. We start living as if we don't need God because look at how good we are living. And I, the thing that will correct that is when you, that sanctification that you think you have, it's when then you fall into some Sin, that's, it's gotta be a big sin, right? Because you can, you're already obviously sinning, but it's not a big sin. So it doesn't really do much to you, right? You're sinning and you're like, okay, well, Lord, forgive me for my sins. It's no big deal. But once it's a big one, I mean, it's big and it's scandalous and everyone knows about it and then you have to either you know you got to get down on your knees in front of people saying look it's my fault it's no one else's fault i'm a sinner i'm the one who messed up and you got to look at people in the face and you deal with that humiliation you deal with that shame all of a sudden your sanctification is no longer a source of pride because now your sanctification is turned into shame and once you turn once you, once you've experienced that big fall Guess what happens to your pride? Your pride goes away instantaneously because guess what you realize you need again? You realize you need God, realize you immediately you need grace, immediately you need forgiveness, immediately it's almost like you need salvation all over again. We become so comfortable in our sanctification that sanctification becomes a source of pride, which deceives us into thinking that we're more godly than we actually are. And then when we finally, if we hit a big sin, I mean, it's got to be big, it's got to be scandalous. And then when you find yourself there, that's over. Then you realize pride's gone because now you realize you need God again. We almost live in our sanctification as if we don't need God. It's not that we do it consciously. It's just like a subconscious kind of like, I'm fine. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Oh, yeah, I'm not perfect. Yeah, I know I, I commit sin. But you're not really, you 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 feel pretty contented and comfortable in your sanctification, it's when that sanctification is exploded by your own failure and sin, you realize you need God again. You live your Christian life. You, I know you theologically know you need God, but practically you live as if you don't. And then when you fall on your face and you're in the pigsty, then you realize I need God. I need to go back to my father's house. I, that's where I need to go. This, 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 this didn't work. And we we become so contented in it, and and that's how we are deceived by it. So I think Edom, and again, I just want to make it very clear. I think Jay Vern McGee is being uh, he's he's blaming Edom for this, but someone else put a comment, and thank you, Will, for your comment. Yes, oh me, I completely agree. Uh, someone had sent me a comment a little while ago saying, you know, Israel was stiff-necked, and yes, Israel was just as pride and arrogant in so many different ways as Edom. The difference between them is God's sovereignty. That they'll make it very clear. Not their differences in how they act. All right. So let's. We want to get much further in this, but Jay Vernon McGee did a great job here and showing the practical implications. I think this week we spent so much time working on all the history and and context and time, which was all good and we needed to be done. But this is a just wow, convicting, 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 convicting. Thing here.
0: Actually, he lived in that rocky mountain fast of the rock-hewn city of Petra. It's still in existence today, and it can be viewed. Many are just overwhelmed by the size of that city, a ready-made city, a city that is there today, hewn out of the rock. And it's protected by the entranceway, which is called L.C., very narrow in places where a horse and rider can get through, but with just a bit of twisting and turning. And actually, it was a city that could easily be defended. And it was a city that had become a place where the nations of the world found out that they were safe there. Everything was secure, was like the first national bank. And many nations deposited vast sums of gold and silver there because they felt that that city could not be taken. They dwelt in the clefts of the rock. What a picture that is. They were living in these great buildings that were hewn out of solid rock inside in this Great Canyon, and there are a couple of canyons there, and up and down the sides of it, and they were perfectly secure. At least they thought they were in that particular place. And they actually signed a Declaration of Independence. They had a false security there, and they severed all relationship with God, even if they had any before. They seceded from the government of God, they revolted and rebelled against him. Now, what's God going to do in a case like this? Well, let's look at the next verse. In verse 4, God says now, "...though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord." though they would exalt themselves like the eagle. Now, the eagle is the symbol of deity. They were going to overthrow God, as Satan attempted to do, and they were going to become deity. They were going to handle the business that God is supposed to handle. How many people today are attempting to run their lives as if they were God? They don't need God. They live without Him. And the interesting thing is that the way God has made all of us, He hasn't put a steering wheel on any of us. And you know why? Because He wants to guide our lives. He wants us to come to Him for salvation first. Then He wants to take charge of our lives. And when you and I run it, we're in the place of God. We're in the driver's seat. We're the one that's the captain of our own little ship and our own plane and we're going through the water and through the air just to suit ourselves may i say to you that is pride and anyone that reaches that position is committing a sin if they continue in it that is fatal because it means they go into a lost eternity now now
1: before he moves on before he moves on I want to, I want to drive a point home here that I think is very, very important about pride. I know, I know some of you are wanting to get further into Obadiah and I want to get there too, but this is just some really practical stuff that I think we, we don't want to leave Obadiah without really being confronted with some of these things. If, if pride, so I think sanctification can become a source of our pride because we now become comfortable in our own godliness and we're like, well, look at everybody else. I'm doing really good. They're all, they're all losers. They're all sinners. Even though we don't say it that way, we think we, we know we feel comfortable with our, our godliness. Look, we, we, it's not like people are coming to church every Sunday, falling on the floor going, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Everyone feels relatively comfortable. They'll say, oh, I'm not perfect. I'm, you know, I, yeah, I committed sin, but no one feels that broken about it. So there's a com- Comfortable, we reach a certain comfortableness within our sanctification, right? So then we almost live like we don't need God, right? Now I know theologically we know all the right answers, we know the all the right words. Everyone knows Christians are good at performance. We we're good at performing and doing what we're saying the right thing and acting the right way. Okay, we 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 got that down. But we almost live like we don't really need God. The only way to really fix pride, I, I cannot stress this enough, is is sin. Now, I'm not saying go out and sin to fix your pride, but I'm saying the more, think of it this way, the the more you are aware of your actions, actual sinfulness, not the sanctification that you feel so comfortable in, but if you can look beyond the sanctification that makes you feel proud and good and like you're a really good, respectful, you know, respectful, respectable person, if you can get past all of that show and really dig in, this is why spending time in God's word is so important because God's word is the sword that opens us up. It does the surgery when you really let God's word open you up and stop looking at what the, 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 the appearance. That you put forth to everyone. I mean, can we dress ourselves up really good spiritually, right? We sit there and we we make ourselves look good so that when we come to church, everyone thinks that we're great. But if we really get down and honest with ourselves, the, the more you are aware of your sinfulness, that is the medication that to fix to, to protect you from pride. It is the, the very thing that will destroy pride is sin, and here's the reason why. Because pride is you living like you don't need God. Pride is where you basically say, I don't need God, and you're living your life apart from God. The one thing that will drive you back to God is sin. He said, well, no trials and troubles. Look, you can say trials and troubles will, will turn you back to God. But here's part, typically what we do with trials and trouble. We pray, God, help me. And then we look for every human solution we can to fix the trial and the trouble. We'll look to uh, alone, help from friends, doctors, medicine. We look to everything. And we pray to God. So in a sense, we still turn to other things. But when it comes to sin, there's nowhere else to turn. There's nowhere else to turn. You can turn to other people to say, Will you forgive me. Maybe they will, maybe they not, maybe they won't, but that's not the forgiveness you ultimately need. It's from God. Sin will remind you that you need God. The more you are aware of your sin, the more you know you need God, which then eradicates and destroys pride. The more you are aware of your own sin, the more you will be protected from pride. The only way to be more aware of your sin is open, honest examination of yourself in light of God's word. That's why whenever you study God's word, you have to apply it to you, not to anybody else. And you'll see that sin. Now, And, and, and if you'll see that sin as God sees it, then you'll realize you need him, which destroys pride. Because pride is living your life as if you don't need God. Sin will remind you that you need him. Sometimes, sadly, it's not like, it's like, it's not the sin of pride. It's not the sin of pride that will make you dr- drive you to God because so we don't really see pride as that big a deal. Sadly, sometimes it has to be this huge sin, this embarrassing, shameful one that will make you go, I need God. So, it, in some ways, sin is really the medicine that fixes pride. Because the only, the only time we really know we need God is when we are confronted with our sin.
0: Now, take a good look. Will you come now and look down in the microscope again? Edom now is the incarnation of Esau. And there stands Esau. What do you see now? You see a human animal. And here is animalism in the raw and the terrifying ugliness of it all. Now, the doctrine of evolution is taught as a fact of science today. I consider it the greatest delusion of the 20th century. And I think that there are many outstanding men that are beginning to get away from it. It's accepted by the average man as truth. And there are strong and, I think, intelligent objections by reliable scientists. Unfortunately, they are largely ignored. And I'm sure that there are many people saying to me, well, I thought we descended from animals. And now you say that men act like animals. And that's exactly what I'm saying, is that we didn't descend up, we descended downward. There's been no ascension, there's been a descension. May I repeat again, the teaching of evolution is a fact of science. I think is the greatest delusion of the 20th century, and I believe we'll come out of the fog and move to another, that is, the unbeliever will move to another explanation for the origin of things. And actually, evolution does not give the origin of things at all. It's been accepted by the average man as truth, gospel truth, because today on television, radio, in our schools, in publications, we're brainwashed that evolution is a fact, a proven fact, and it's absolutely not. The strong and intelligent objections that have been given by reliable scientists are entirely ignored today. Now, I'm not going to discuss the pros and cons of evolution. That's not my thought. But this is something that I became interested in even before I began studying for the ministry. When I was 16 years of age, I had a great desire to read and study. And I appealed to the wrong man, a minister who was a liberal at that time, and he urged me to read Darwin. And when I was 16 years old, I had read The Origin of Species. I'd read The Descent of Man and other miscellaneous papers. And I studied it, of course, later in college. I studied it again in a denominational seminary. And there it was theistic evolution, which I think is probably the most absurd interpretation of the origin of things of all. But I want to say to you that far as I'm concerned, I totally reject the godless propaganda of evolution. This idea that it's from mud to man, from protoplasm to personality, from amoeba to animation, I'd like to dismiss the argument with the quotation from Dr. Edwin Conklin, the great biologist. And he said, "...the probability of life originating from accident..." is comparable to the probability of the unabridged dictionary resulting from an explosion in a printing shop. And that, my friend, is pretty far-fetched, is it not? And that's good enough for me. Now, the chief difficulty with the theory of evolution is its end results. Evolution leads to an awful, fatal pessimism. It leads man to believe that he has arrived that he's something, that he is actually up at the top. Well, that has led, really, to a fatalism today, a fatal pessimism. And it's in our colleges, and it came to an alarming rate several years ago, of suicides among young people. I attribute it to the teaching of evolution and Dr. Albert Einstein made this statement, and I think many would consider him an authority. He says, "...the man who regards his own life and that of his fellow creatures as meaningless is not merely unfortunate, but almost disqualified for life." That's a good statement. And if you want to know how this has affected man, listen to the poetry of a man that died not long ago. Why stand Hugh Auden? The British poet, however, he came to this country and became a citizen of this country, or else he would have been the poet laureate of Great Britain. And listen to this pessimism of this man. Were all the stars to disappear or die, I should learn to look at an empty sky and feel its total dark sublime though this might take me a little time. How pessimistic. And then he added this, Looking up at the stars, I know quite well that for all they care, I can go to hell. Now, I say to you, that's pessimism. And that is the teaching that evolution has led to. But wait just a minute. The frightful thing, that you have here in Obadiah. And the startling thing and amazing thing is this. The little book of Obadiah is God's trenchant answer to evolution. And this is the reason that he said what he did about Edom. Now, let me illustrate this. Out on Wilshire Boulevard here in Los Angeles, there are what are known as the La Brea Tar Pits. And they built a museum, which is, I understand, a great museum. I haven't been there. But it's a tourist attraction in Southern California to go to the La Brea Tar Pits and then to go to this museum. Now, I went there when it was just a small museum. When I came out here, first time as a tourist. And they showed us how man lived. That is, now that's according to the scientists out here, how he lived 100,000 to 200,000 years ago in California. And they show him, and he lived like an animal, because he looked like an animal according to the picture that they have of him. And by the way, they didn't get a photograph. The fellow turned around before they got the picture, and they don't have the photograph, but they drew on their imagination. Now, God has something to say to us today. Will you hear me carefully? Why go back a 100,000 years? Go ahead and ride out Wilshire Boulevard right now at this moment. Out there at this moment, there are men and women that are living like animals. They don't look like animals. Some of them are called beautiful people, but they're living like animals. And the fact is, that they've come down from a high plane where God had created them, and they've come down to the plane where they do not depend on God. And they live not only like animals, they live lower than animals. No animal gets drunk and beats his wife or shoots his children or murders or is homosexual. Only man does that. Man lives lower than animals in Southern California. And they were living like that yonder in Edom and Obadiah's day. I wonder if you've ever heard about the pig up here in Kentucky that he got out of his pig pen and he went out in the woods and he found a still where they were making corn whiskey. And the still was leaking and he began to eat some of the mash and drink the liquid and he got drunk. And for two days he was lying stretched out there drunk. Finally, when he sobered up, while the pig got up and started to walk away. And when he did, grunting along, they thought they heard him say, I'll never play the man again. Or someone has put it like this. And this is a poem I want to pass on to you. And I put the parenthesis around it. Here I begin. How well do I remember was in the bleak December as I was strolling down the street in manly pride, when my heart began to flutter, and I fell into a gutter, and a pig came up and lay down by my side. As I lay there in the gutter, with my heart still all aflutter, a man passing by did chance to say, You can tell a man that boozes by the company that he chooses, And the pig got up and slowly walked away. May I say to you, friends, man can go lower than an animal in his living down here when he determines that he's going to live without God. Now, I move on here in this tremendous little book, and that's the book I've written on it, is Evolution and You, (laughs) And I deal with Obadiah, you see. A man didn't come from an animal. Man was created on a high plane, and he fell. He didn't fall up. He fell down. He can go down to the very gutter of life. Now, will you notice verse 5? He says, If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape-gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? What he's saying is this, even if a thief came to you, he'd just get all he wanted. He wouldn't take everything. And it would be true also of a grape-gatherer. He would leave some grapes. There'd be some he wouldn't take. But God says, when I judge you, this is what I'm going to do. Notice verse 6, how are the things of Esau searched out? And Dr. Ginsburg translates that word search out as "strip bare. And this was our key verse, how are the things of Esau stripped bare? Or as we have put it, God's put him under the microscope. And God says, come look. Look through the Word of God, and look here at this man, and God says, I hate him. Why do I hate him? It's because of pride of life. He's turned his back on me, and he has declared his ability to live without God. That's the pride of life. Now, how are his hidden things sought up? Now, frankly... I read the story back in Genesis of Esau, and I don't quite get that. I'm a little slow about getting things, but I miss that in Genesis. Well, I sure don't miss it here. And I can take now the microscope and go back and look at Esau and see why he wanted to trade in his birthright for a bowl of soup. For the very simple reason, it meant that he'd be the priest in the family. It meant a relationship to God. And frankly, he would rather have a bowl of soup than to have a relationship with God. And when you reach that place, friends, you're down on the level of the pig that got down in the gutter. Now, I want to say that kindly, but it's not my idea. I didn't originate it. It's in Obadiah, and God has said this. Now, will you notice, and I read on, All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. Now, Edom was a nation that all the enemies of that day just passed by because they just couldn't spend time with him holed up in the rock-hewn city of Petra. But Nebuchadnezzar was able to get spies inside the city. And through them, he was able to take the city. And it was taken. Just as God used Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Jerusalem, Jacob's sons, who had turned from God, he uses Nebuchadnezzar also to reach in and take Edom, Esau's sons, now, will you notice verse 8, "...shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of the mount of Esau?" Now, they were not only noted for the fact that they were well protected in their Rocky Mountain fast, in that beautiful city it is, even to this good day. And they were living there in a false security, But they had developed a wisdom and learning and actually superstition. They found the altars, the bloody altars that are up on top of the mountains round about there where they offered sacrifices. And they were given over to that. And people from all nations came there for the wisdom of these people, you see. They couldn't get wisdom from God when man can't get wisdom from God They'll always turn to the nether world, and they did that here. And this city was noted for it. Verse 9, "...and thy mighty man, O Teman," and that's another name for the Edomites, "...shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter." Now, he's going to list here... From verse 10 through 14, he's going to give a list, a catalog of the reasons that God's going to destroy them. That is, he's going to spell it out. The pride of life, we said, is the great sin, but as we've already indicated, it leads to the committing of other sins. You see, your philosophy of life, friends, is going to gradually work its way down into your fingers and your feet and your eyes and all of your senses. And you're going to express that philosophy in some way. And if you're godless, you're going to lead a godless life. If you are godly, you're going to lead a godly life. That naturally follows. Now, God mentions here, actually five different reasons of why He judges them. They committed certain acts, and five acts are mentioned here, and He spells it out. But God was to punish them, and He was to punish them in two different ways. He was to send them into captivity, just as He did the nation Israel. But with this exception,
1: just jump in really quick as he goes through there because he moved through that last part relatively quick because he spent most of his time talking about pride which is obviously super important very convicting he's made some great points just so he attributes the destruction of edom to nebuchadnezzar and that would have occurred somewhere between 587 and 586 bc all right 587 to 586 bc if we uh place the, the the final destruction here um uh, and we give it, we attribute it to Nebuchadnezzar uh, coming in and uh, laying waste. It would be Nebuchadnezzar the second, I believe, would
0: be the Nebuchadnezzar who would have been uh, carrying that out. All right, now let's continue. That the nation Israel would return and be a people as they are today, but there would come a time when the Edomites would cease being a nation, and they would never become a nation again, never again. Now, somebody's going to raise the question, do you think that they are any Edomites around today? No, they're not around today. They intermarried with the Ishmaelites and the others there of the desert, and that would be part of the Arab world today. There's a difference in Arabs, by the way, and that would explain that difference. You'd find them over there, among the Arabs today. And again, still the enemy of the nation Israel. Now, Obadiah is a prophecy that answers a very important question. Why did God say it, the last book of the Old Testament, that Esau have I hated and Jacob have I loved? Now, he never said that in Genesis. He waited until both became a nation. And you find that now God puts Esau under the mic.
1: Again, I just have to, I, I, oh, this, this part bothers me so much. Romans 9 makes it clear that God loved and hated before they were born. He declared it before they were born. He may not have stated it in Genesis, but Romans 9 says it was stated in eternity past. The decision was made in eternity past. Again, he keeps going like, see, this is why God hated Edom. God hated Esau and loved Jacob because of his sovereign choice, right? It, it, it's just, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make, it doesn't work because Jacob was just as mess up as Edom in so many different ways. All right. And again, Jacob had more, Jacob and Israel had far more advantages than Edom would have had. All right, here we go.
0: And he's a great nation and the overweening sin of this nation was the pride of thine heart hath deceived thee." Now, I'm sure that gave folk quite a letdown, because a great many people, they just don't consider pride as being a great sin. And we made a contrast between murder and lying and stealing. And a great many people would say, well,
1: if you're, under, if you're trying to go, well, why is he all of a sudden reviewing in the middle of this? Remember, these, were, these are radio programs. So these would have been all broken down into different segments. So what we're hearing here is obviously the beginning of another radio program where he's going back and reviewing. So just so that you're like, well, why is he he's just reviewing all of a sudden? It may seem weird because this would have been the start of another radio broadcast.
0: All right, here we go. A proud man. It's bad that he's proud. But that's not as bad as being a murderer. God says it's worse than being a murderer. It's worse than being an alcoholic, to be a man lifted up by pride. And God says he hates a proud heart. He's made that very clear in the Word of God. God gives grace to the humble, but the proud, he can do nothing with them at all. And we discovered that pride is... An attitude, pride of heart, is an attitude of a life that declares its ability to live without God. God hates that. This is His universe, and He is to be worshipped. He is to be praised. He is to be recognized. And when a man, a little creature down here, no bigger than a little bug in God's great, vast universe, When that little creature lifts himself up in pride, God says he hates it. Now, God loves you, but God hates your pride. And if you are eaten up with it, may I say to you, there's nothing God can do with you at all. Now, the question arises, it's an attitude. A man can be proud and maybe not reveal it. However, I do think that this is one sin of the life that you can't conceal. There are certain things you can conceal. You can conceal hatred. You can conceal lust. But you cannot conceal pride very long. It's going to break out like a running cancer because of the fact that it is such a tremendous driving force in man. Now, "...the attitude of the life will lead to action of the life." Now, the thing that Obadiah does, he now gives a catalog of the actions that are derived from the pride of the heart. And these are the terrible sins that come from that. Now, you must remember that Esau and Jacob were brothers." They were twin brothers. They were not identical twins. They were actually opposite twins. But they were twins, and they grew up in the same family, same father and mother. And there was a struggle from the very beginning. There was a hatred and a bitterness that was never healed, and was never healed when they became two great nations And we find, though, that God had something to say to His people about their relationship to Edom. And I want to turn to one of the verses of Scripture. For instance, Psalm 137, verse 7. He says, "'Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, "'Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof.'" And Edom, instead of befriending Israel in their dark hour when the Babylonians destroyed their nation, while well, they stood on the sidelines. In fact, they became the cheering section and urged them on. But when you go way back in their history to Deuteronomy 23, verse 7, and I'd like to read this to you because this is very interesting. God said to them at the beginning, when they came into that land, Thou shalt not abhor an Edomite, for he's thy brother. Thou shalt not abhor an Egyptian, because thou wast a sojourner in his land. But the tie with the Edomite was greater. He's your brother, the blood brother. And because of that, God says that you're not to hate him. And yet we see that Edom manifested that bitterness and hatred throughout the entire length and extent of the nation. And they were a proud people in the rock-hewn city of Petra, that city that was in that Rocky Mountain stronghold, that fortress that could not be taken. And they thought they could not be destroyed. And they were guilty now of certain things And there are five specifics, five specific actions that are mentioned here that are derived from pride and attitude of the life to live without God. Number one is in verse 10, and I want us to look at these now. The first one is violence. Will you notice it? For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. And actually, two things were to happen to them. They were to go into captivity. Finally, Babylon was able to take the city and did take them captive. And the second thing, they were to be utterly destroyed so that they would not be a nation. And I think it's quite interesting that you don't hear of the Edomites today, but you hear a great deal of the Israelites. They have become a nation. Now, here is an example of a nation that has attempted to live without God. And the first thing that they are guilty of, is violence. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. And they were a violent people, a warlike people, and they came in that direction. We have learned the hard way in this country that very little can be settled by war and violence never really settles questions at all. Violence is not God's method. You may be sure of that. Now, that is number one. Now, number two, the thing that they...
1: I think the violence there can also pertain to the fact that if you go back... uh, Let's see here. Uh, Where is it? Uh, If we go back to verse... Let's see here. Give me one second. Verse 66. How, uh, see, verse 7 All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee. Hang on. Let me go all the way back here to verse 2. See, Uh, verse 3. All right. Uh, The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the cliffs of the rock, whose habitation is high, saith in his heart, Who shall bring uh, me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagles, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence it will bring thee down, saith the Lord. If these come to thee, if robbers by night, uh, if 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 robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would uh, they not have uh, stolen till they had enough? If the grapevines come to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are the hidden things sought uh, uh, sought up? All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that they were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread, they have laid wound under thee. There is uh, none understanding in him. Shall I not in that day, saith uh, the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of uh, Mount of Esau? And thy mighty man, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the Mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. So all the judgment that's coming upon them, Nebuchadnezzar, we've talked about that. All right. So it talks about the violence. And then I want you to see verse 11. All right. I just want to make sure we bring all of that back together. Verse 11. And the day that thou stoodest on the other side, and the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem even thou wast as one of them that i think their violence here is they're all, they're being accused of being violent in one sense simply because they didn't do anything like when the people came to destroy Jerusalem they didn't in a sense take up for their brother they didn't stand up They just let it happen. So they are violent, not only in in a sense by what they have done, but they're also in a sense violent by what they haven't done because they are guilty of the same thing that those people who came in and destroyed Jerusalem was guilty of. All right. I just want to make sure we have a kind of a broader understanding of that violence.
0: Did they join the enemy? Verse 11. In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, In the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them. In other words, you find that they've joined the enemy, and they've gone over to the other side. This is the awful, terrible thing that they were guilty of. Now, the third thing is in verse 12. "...but thou shouldst not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldst thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldst thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress." Now, they rejoice over the calamity that has come to Judah. And that is always an action of pride. When you find someone who rejoices over the trouble that some other individual is having, you may be sure that you're speaking to a person who's very proud. And pride is something God says he hates. What a revelation this is. Now, I want to cover all of these and then come back and look at this. Number four in verse 13 is they were not only joined up with the enemy, but they're guilty of looting and plundering and pillaging after the enemy has taken Israel away. They absolutely move in and loot. Now, will you notice this? Thou shouldst not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, thou shouldst not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Now, pride will lead a man to do some terrible things. One of the things is stealing. One of the things is dishonesty in business. Many a man, in order to keep up a front, in his business, will resort to dishonest methods. Many a man to win a woman to become his wife will use dishonest methods. Many a man to keep up with the fellows at the club, he will resort to dishonest methods. And today our society, our contemporary society, is honeycombed with dishonesty with people trying to keep up with the Joneses. What is the problem? Well, the problem, the root problem is pride. And this proud man is trying to live his life apart from God. And when he does that, it leads to this sort of thing. May I say to you, the Bible is still the best book on psychology. It's the best book to get down at the root of the problem that is in the human heart that which today is destroying our society. And again, will you forgive me for saying this? We have so many little courses in our churches, and the world today puts them on. Today you can go anywhere and take a course in most anything. You can go and spend two or three weeks. You can learn this. You can learn this psychological approach, actually how to make a forceful speech how to improve yourself in your job, uh, how to become a better neighbor, how to love your wife more, and how to treat your children better and bring them up. And we have all kinds of little gimmicks given today. Who would ever have thought that in the prophecy of Obadiah that you have the root cause that's at the very basis of our society today that are leading both men and women to commit terrible deeds. Why? Because the root problem is pride. They're trying to live without God today and attempting to live without God. It leads them into dishonest actions. It leads them to get with the wrong crowd. It'll lead them to do these things that they should not be doing and that will bring their destruction. In fact, these actions are self-destructive.
1: We'll have to stop there. I wanted to get I wanted to get down to when he's getting ready to start about the restoration of Israel, and obviously he's not going to leave himself much time to deal with that subject. Which well, we may have to then bring in some other uh, resources uh, to look at that subject. But wow, some convicting, convicting words about pride. Um, again, the destruction, Nebuchadnezzar is, is then take them and then they're ultimately completely just basically destroyed and become a nation no more. And, and let me just make it very clear, though. Um, Dr. J. Vernon McGee is doing a great job on so much of this. I just feel that it's being he he's forgetting the real issue here. It, the difference between Jacob and Esau, between Israel and Edom. Is God's sovereign election. How you ignore that just ignores the whole, ignores Romans chapter 9. And not only that, you are ignoring the reality of Israel's life and Edom's life. You look at Israel, you look at Edom. Why is Edom destroyed and Israel is going to be restored? Why? Why is Israel? Because Israel does the same things Edom does in so many different ways. They're just as guilty and ungodly. It's God's sovereignty that's in all of this. Yeah, He's putting the emphasis on their pride, which is great. But you can't real—you can't forget the, like we can become so focused on the actions here that we forget the theology of Obadiah. The theology of Obadiah is this: is the sovereignty of God at work. He. He, his work in basically Jacob and Esau and Israel and Edom, and it's, it's God's sovereignty at play here. It still shows man's responsibility, but it shows God judging here and going to show grace and restoration to Israel. So um, I just think that can be forgotten, but we've emphasized that a lot this week. All right, we'll stop right there and uh, we'll finish this afternoon uh, the book of Obadiah. Uh, with this, I I know it's gonna uh, we're gonna even go another part, but um, I, I hope that this th- this has been really convicting, at least to me. I can't speak for anybody else. There's some really good lessons we've learned here. All right, I'll stop right there. You can email me newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Uh, I'll be back this afternoon. We'll finish this and we'll introduce this this week's Bible study exercise, which will be based on Genesis 37, but we're gonna go very topical. Uh, with it. And it will all make sense. And uh, oh, oh yeah, it'll be interesting to see what we're going to be talking about in Genesis 37. All right. So yeah, I, I, I think it was very convicting, very convicting. And uh, we, we, we may have to do some more talk about pride, but wow, he, he, he definitely went in and uh, there was a lot there we can learn. All right. I'll stop right there. Everyone have a great day. God bless.